right, it's good to be with you uh, this evening. Um, we're, I'm going to challenge you a little bit, and I'm going to follow up on some of what Todd shared last week, but we're going to dig more specifically into the concept of worldview. I want you to come away from this time understanding the significance of worldview in the kinds of cross-cultural ministry environments that, uh, that we're specifically talking about in a, in a course like this, and those worldview environments have to do with what we would describe as unreached and unengaged uh, language environments primarily, and I'm going to talk more about that with you tonight. Now, there's both a blessing and a challenge to this. Um, the challenge is that in order to communicate biblical truth effectively across cultural boundaries, across language and cultural boundaries, I believe that we're responsible as communicators to learn our way into other worldviews. And I may say that to you, and you don't, even, you don't know how I'm defining worldview, so you say, theoretically, I agree with you, and that's okay, because I'm going to help you to understand a definition of worldview tonight. So that's the challenge, is that we're in a position in complicated kinds of contexts, and I'm going to give you examples of that um, tonight, of some of the complexities that we face in dealing with those specific kinds of worldview uh, challenges in the environments where we're working. The, the, the blessing, so I said there's a challenge, there's also an encouragement. The encouragement or the blessing is that we've seen the fact that the Scriptures do indeed have the explanatory pow, uh, power to communicate across these kinds of ba- boundaries and barriers. So we can have confidence in the power of God's Word to indeed do the kind of work that that he describes his word to be able to do, and yet there's a lot of worldview analysis, what I think of as worldview exegesis or cultural analysis that we, that we as communicators have to do in the process of that. I wonder if you've ever thought about your unique interpretive perspective of the world, what, we would, what I would call a worldview. Um, I, I suspect that most of us, because worldviews are, as I'll define them, they're less than uh, consciously held uh, presuppositions that most of us in the cultural backgrounds that we come from, and I know there are some multicultural people in the world who probably, by virtue of having to cross in and out of other cultural uh, environments, have done more thinking about this than, than the average, I'll say the average American, and that's no offense to you as, as perhaps an average American. But there's, um, there's a kind of evaluation that we need to do and I'll just say this, that I'm a, I'm a particular a unique, um, maybe weird even person because I grew up in different kinds of environments than the, than the standard one. I would consider, just for what it's worth, all of us in some way or other are subcultural. Uh, now, I don't intend to be offensive. You know, you might, that might be offensive to you. Uh, you. Wait, did he just call me subcultural? Like, is that like, you know, is that like some kind of a, a slight to uh, who I am? Is that, is that a Neanderthal comment or something? So it's not like subnormal, um, it's not like subintelligent, but there's, there are uniquenesses in our cultural backgrounds that c- cause us each one to have some specific ways that we think about the world. Now, as a young person, so just a little bit of my story, and you'll appreciate my strangeness maybe. Um, I grew up in cross-cultural environments, so as a child and as a young adult and as an adult, I've stood with local people in six different 
country contexts, in school assemblies and gatherings of, of people, citizens of countries, singing national anthems from six different country environments, okay? So um, I could, I'm not going to sing national anthems for you tonight. It would be an interesting experience. It might feel a little like the Olympics, um, but I'm not going to do that. But my point is, is that that kind of in, set of influences, as you can imagine, provides a, a, a unique blend of sets of perspectives, loyalties. You, you're standing alongside other people who have a unique identity in light of the context where they're from. You, are you following me there? And so there's a uniqueness to that, so that for better or worse. And uh, so I was the kind of person that grew up in those kinds of environments. Not only that, but we grew up in settings where uh, with the Yanomamu people. So my parents and grandparents worked with a tribal group in the Amazon basin called the Yanomamu in Venezuela and Brazil. And we spent a lot of time on the Amazon, Orinoco, the Palamo, a lot of tributaries upriver from the, uh, from the big cities in the interior of Venezuela and Brazil. And so like for you, you, had your, you have your pet dog and your pet cat, and we had a pet ocelot, okay? I know it sounds weird, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. I know there's a lot of controversy about exotic pets, but this was the Amazon, okay? So we didn't bring it over here. And ocelots will kill your chickens, I just warn you. They can get out of an enclosure and kill your chickens. And, and they're pretty indiscriminate. They'll just kind of kill all of them and leave them there, laying there dead for you. Not eat them, just let you know they can kill all of them. Um, and, and so we finally had to let the ocelot go across the river. But my, you know, growing up in these kinds of environments where the Yanomamu people, they, they live in a very isolated context. In fact, the, the land area, I was looking this up recently because I couldn't remember, the land area they occupy, this group of 20,000 people, is something like 20,000 square miles of jungle. So that's bigger than your hunting lease, you know? the one you, you go and hunt deer on or whatever. And so it's a huge area, and that's their natural habitat or environment. And so we grew up in contexts where parents and grandparents were planting churches in those settings. And I can remember as a kid, you know, we learned John 3.16 3, in English, like most of you do, did, right? But we also learned John 3.16 in Yanomami because that was the language that the, my parents were working in. And so just to give you an idea of what this sounds like, you'll just have to take my word for it, because I could be lying to you and making something up, but you'll, you'll have to believe me, okay? John 3.16 in Yanomami, let me just let you know. It says, You want to try it? You want to try it? No, it's true. It, is, it actually is John 3.16. You, you just have to believe me. But as, as, so as a kid and as an adult serving in these kinds of contexts, um, I was always really impressed by the significance of those worldview barriers for communication. And it's not just because of these tribal kinds of settings, just the sheer fact of the, the cultural differences created by uniqueness in language and the challenges of communicating cr truth across those kinds of barriers. And, I, you know, we, um, I, we all have our, our pictures and our stories, and we have fish stories from the Amazon too, okay? So this is a small catfish. 
We call it a turuni, it's a three-footer. And this is a big catfish. This is a six-foot-two, 200-pound catfish from the Orinoco River. So you have fish stories and so do I, okay? But it's, it's, it just was a unique environment for us. Um, I went to the Dallas, this, was, this really epitomized it for me. So I hadn't been back to the Amazon Basin for a while. I was in college or just after that, and my, my brother-in-law and I went to Dallas World Aquarium, and they have a big rainforest exhibit in there. And it's, it's cool because it's a live exhibit, so they have a big net, and underneath the canopy there, they have all the animals on multiple layers, and you can walk through and see all the animals. And so my brother and I were walk, brother-in-law and I were walking around in there, and, it, and he's like, hey, you know, have you seen many of these animals before? And I was looking around in there, and I said, yeah, you know, actually I have. Um, in fact, um, you know, I could probably tell you the names of most of them in Yanomamu or Spanish or maybe Portuguese. Um, I can tell you what sounds a lot of them make when, when you're hunting them in the jungle. And, and the, the real downside is I could probably tell you what most of them taste like because the Yanomamu eat everything in the place. And, you know, it's a kind of a strange showstopper when the lady next to you in the exhibit is saying, man, isn't that sloth so slow and cute? And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, slow, bo slow boiled. The sloth is sort of tough still, but you can, get, you can get away with it. Or, you know, isn't that howler monkey really noisy? It's like, yeah, well, you should try chasing one through the jungle with a, you know, with a bow and arrow and see if you can bring him down and then bring him back and smoke him. If you put him on a smoke rack for four hours, you know, he loses some of his gamey flavor. So anyway, so... I'm serious now, it makes me kind of weird, right? I'm in that kind of strange category, but um, just the, the sheer fact of having had those opportunities put us in that kind of position, and so I, I don't want to upset your sentimentalities anymore um, with my eccentric kind of background, but um, I, I do want to think with you, and I want you to think with me tonight, and I'm going to give you a lot of practical examples from the Yanomamu worldview but I want you to think with me about three specific questions tonight that help you do um, dig more deeply into your worldview because the, the challenge is for us that if we don't understand some of the presuppositions that we ourselves bring to the conversation in, in understanding worldview, then it's hard for us to imagine what the dis distance is like to cross into the worldviews of others. And so these are the three questions that I'm gonna, we're going to think through tonight. Um, number one, what is a worldview? Just to give you a definition and help you to think about what that means for us practically, and especially for cross-cultural church planning. Number two, what contributes to the formation of worldviews? And we're going to think about that both from a, a, um, a, a language culture perspective, but especially from a biblical perspective, which I think is important for us. And then thirdly, how do worldviews change? And again, because of the ways in which we're engaging across language and culture boundaries, it's really important for us to, to be thinking forward toward the, the ways in which the truths of God's Word will be communicated such that they can affect and create a worldview change, okay? So that's where we're headed, and I'm gonna start with, and, and I, know, I know how this works now. I've taught different classes in various contexts for a while. I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna work hard to keep you with me, okay? There's gonna be some text on the screen. 
but I have confidence in you that you'll stay with me. You won't sleep. And, and I'll give you a lot, try to give you lots of examples, and so hopefully we can mix it up enough that you won't uh, feel like I'm losing you. So stay with me, okay? So first of all, what is a worldview? Now, there are a lot of good definitions that have been proposed, but uh, here's the definition I, I tried to come up with in one memorable sentence and tried not to use a lot of big words. I tried hard. So don't be mad at me for using a word like presuppositional, because I know it sounds big. But a presuppositional framework through which the human heart interprets and relates uh, to reality. So a presuppositional framework through which the human heart interprets and relates to reality is a definition that I think captures what we're looking for, especially when we talk about crossing cultural barriers you know, with the gospel. And by the way, I do think you can benefit from this kind of thought process in even your own evangelistic efforts in your own cultural context, because there's a way in which we can learn our way into the lives of others around us that allows us to really understand their frames of reference for life. And um, I, I believe we can benefit from this kind of an idea here. But mo most importantly, we're focused on the significance of worldview for barriers cross-culturally and cross-linguistically. And so presuppositional, what does that mean for you? I'm just, let's just unpack the definition quickly, and then I'll give you an, an example, okay? So we're going to get to an example quick. That's what everybody always remembers anyway. But let's talk about the definition, okay? So what does the word presuppositional mean to you? What was that? Yeah, assumed, right? And by assumed, we mean oftentimes and this is the issue with worldview, which makes it challenging, it's the underlying framework, so I'm using the word framework, so a system, a presupposed system through which I, my heart, so when, we, and when I talk about the heart, we're talking about the center of human volition, I'm, ta I'm thinking of that in biblical terms, like in the Hebrew the usage of the word heart, talking about the underlying volition, uh, consciousness, uh, intent. The, the, in reality, the core of what makes a person a person is the heart. So a presuppositional framework is an, the, the ways in which my heart assumes and relates to how reality should work. Now, it's hard for us to understand exactly what that means because it's pre-conscious oftentimes. But you bring to the table of interpreting a scene of life a, a, a set of frames of reference that are assumed in your heart, and r rarely is it the case that you're actually aware of this set of assumptions that you're making about reality. And I'm going to give you, again, I'm going to give you some examples. I'm going to give you some examples both from familiar cultural environments as well as distant ones, like the Yanomamu one, because I, I, it's important for us to be grasping what this kind of interpretive process means practically as we think about engaging across cultural boundaries and language boundaries, and what makes it for me, uh, as, a, as a young person who stood on the inside alongside local people, learning their local languages as a child and seeing the communication coming from older uh, saints, missionaries, who had learned those languages and cultures as second languages and cultures, trying to communicate their way into this worldview and realizing how easy it was for those worldview frameworks to cause miscommunication and misunderstanding. Um, so my, my challenge for you tonight, if you don't remember anything else, is for you to realize 
that worldview interpretation and worldview presuppositions really exist and they really matter. And it takes a lot of hard work for us as cross-cultural workers to dig down into the core of that presuppositional framework. Many times you're helping local people to understand their own presuppositional framework. They don't think about it either. And if we don't have any awareness of the fact that we have one, we bring a presuppositional framework to the table, then how are we going to help other people uncover theirs, right? That's part of the challenge of this. And I, I know that those of you who have crossed cultural boundaries, you could nod your heads a lot more quickly than probably others because you've felt and seen this. But let's, let me give you a practical example, okay? Because I, I don't, I, I don't want to lose you, all right? So let's, let me give you an example. I'm going to show you a picture of a map, and I want to play rapid word association, okay? Like, what first comes to your mind when you see this map, all right? You ready? Just what phrase or word first comes to your mind when you see it? You ready? Here we go. <laughs> upside down. How many people would say upside down? Upside down. I mean, seriously, right? Isn't that upside down? And the question, of course, because this is the kind of person I am, I'm annoying to my family and my neighbors. Why? Why is it upside down? Why? What's that? Yeah, we've always seen it a different orientation. And can we even think of some practical reasons why it's upside down? Like, can you give me any, any actual justification? There's usually a worldview alert, by the way, when, it's, when you ask that question and you're saying, and people say, what, what do you mean? It, this, there's no question here. Move on, <laughs> right? What, what? Yeah, north and south. Okay, so we got a north and south issue. And some would even say that's biblical, right? Because the Bible talks about north, south, east, and west. So, I mean, we've, we've, uh, we've created a biblical reference point for north, south, east, and west, right? So, north and south, is there anything else you guys think of that offends you about this map? Yes. Yeah, where in the world is North America? I'm glad you brought that up. It's way down in the corner. That's not right. You know, can't be that way. What? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yes, right? I mean, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Does, and truthfully, doesn't it make you feel better from your, your frame of reference that your country appears in the middle? I mean, generally speaking, right? I mean, you know, it, it can be kind of offensive if your country's not in the middle. So, um, but, but let's think about it. Just think with me for a second, okay? Think with me for a second. Now, our our solar system in which the earth exists is a big space, right? It's a big space. Okay. Our galaxy in which our solar system exists is a big space, right? I'm going to, and, and our universe in which our galaxy exists is a big space, right? You with me? So, did you know, for example, that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies in our universe? 100 to 200 billion, and within each of those galaxies, there are multiple solar systems. So we've got 100 to 200 billion galaxies, and there are multiple solar systems in the, inside each one. So let's just say that you were a moonian, okay? You're not from Earth, you're on the moon, you live on the moon. You're 239,000 miles away from the Earth, you're a moonian, that's your cultural identity. 
and you're looking at the earth from the perspective where you live on the moon, where is north and south, up and down, and which continent is central? You, you're, you're, you're tracking with me. Like, let's move out to uh, Saturn, and you're a Saturnian now. So you're a person from that cultural perspective, and you're looking at the earth, and you say, wait, I'm not looking at the earth because I don't even know where the earth is in the picture. Well, there it is. It's that little dot, okay? Just so you, I, you know, I needed to help you. All right? So then where is north and south and up and down? And does, right? I mean, no way. We can't tell, can we? How about if you go out, you're a Voyagerian, you're on NASA's Voyager 1, and at this point in time, NASA's Voyager 1 was 3.7 billion miles away from the Earth, still in our solar system, by the way, still in it. In fact, NASA's Voyager 1 is 14.5 billion miles away from the Earth now, having just moved outside our solar system, it's in the Oort cloud, and it's going to emerge from that, which I don't know anything about the Oort cloud, but it makes me sound like I know something. So I'll say, you know, the Oort cloud, don't have a clue what that is. But it's in the Oort cloud, and 20,000 years from now, it's going to merge out of our galaxy. Just, just tidbits of information you never needed to know. But that little pale blue dot there, which is a famous statement about the position of the Earth in relationship to the universe by some secular individuals, right? I mean, what's the perspective of the Earth that we have from there. You certainly wouldn't have much to do with up, down, north, south, etc. right? You follow me? So I'm, I'm, in, I'm challenging you to think that a lot of the ways in which we perceive life and we, we assume certain ways of understanding even the world around us are based on our cultural environments, their worldview-level kinds of issues and you may now say to me, well, that's interesting, thanks, you know, I got that. Um, so what, right? So what? So let me give you another example practically from the Yanomamu worldview, okay? Because the Yanomamu people, they don't see the map like this, they see the world like this. The Yanomamu people believe there are four layers of earth that exist parallel to one another. And the upper layer is, is a pristine kind of layer called, um, they call it duku kamisi, which the word duku, just in case you want to feed your pet sloth, by the way, there's a certain type of leaf. If you pick it, it's the duku duku version of the leaves because it's kind of pristine. There are certain, anyway, whatever. That's another piece of information you never wanted to know. So, but this is a pristine upper layer. And that exists kind of in a place where um, there, everything material and spiritual descended down from there. And then the second layer down in the Yanomamu cosmology is, the, is what we call the Hedu, which is Hedu Kamisu, which is the, the heavenly layer or the sky layer. And pinned to the underside of the sky layer are all the, the planets and the sun and moon and stars. So when the Yanomamu people think about the, the, the heavenly bodies, if you will, they would ask us when we were flying in airplanes if we would tend to bump into some of those heavenly bodies, because they were perceiving this as the underside of that Hedu layer, which you can see in the picture, there is this representation for them of a, an eternal, eternal's a tough word for the Yanomamu, but of a kind of place where souls, or at least one part of a soul, goes when the soul dies, just for what it's worth. You know, you know, you know the controversy of 
dichotomous versus tripartite view of of human nature, right? Anybody with me here? So body, soul, and spirit, or just body and soul slash spirit? Is it two or is it three? Well, for the Yanomami, it's neither of those. It's a body and then multiple spirits. So there's a kind of soul that goes up to the Hedu layer, and then there's a soul that goes that stays on the earth and influences the living. And then there may be a soul, a part of a soul that descends. So they may have three different parts of the human soul that, that in one way or another are affected and affect others after their death. So they believe that there's that second layer. Then the hei kamisi, or tamisi is the layer where we live, where all the current life um, activities take place. And then there's a lower layer that is a layer where a Yanomamu community, a specific group, fell through down to the bottom. And the problem that they had was that when they fell down, they, they became people who didn't die. They, in fact, represent what the Yanomamu called the Nobadabu, the ancestors. And they fell down, but the problem is they don't have any game, so there's no, nothing to hunt there. So that, that turned them into cannibals. And one of the ways they cannibalize is that they... Re, they spiritually reach up and often steal the souls of the living. And so there's the, this underlayer of existence that, and, 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 and I think this is just part of the deception of Satan in the lives of people around the world, because in Yanomami society, infant mortality is so high because, because of just the rampant nature of sickness and, and uh, malnutrition and other issues that it's typically the case that they see these spirit beings on the lower level stealing the souls of children. And so then those, those spirit beings that are existing down there are impacting uh, the lives of those living on the, the earth where we are now, okay? Now, let's just say, and I'm, I'm just, I'll just, for the sake of argument, if we were able to translate the start of Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created, okay? That's, there's, just for what it's worth, in Bible translation, that's complicated already in Yanomamu because to find a a parallel phrase for in the beginning is not as easy as it sounds because when is the beginning? Like in the Yanomamu society, is that the time of the ancestors, the Nobadabu, because that's the reference point for in the beginning for them, like the time when the ancestors existed, Haba Dodihiwa, they would say, like way back in the very beginning. Or, or how do we define in the beginning, and then how do we define God, because there's no transcendent, all-knowing, eternal, personal, uh, omnipotent God. There's no deity figure in Yanomamu society that you can find a one-word designator to say, plug that name right there in Yanomamu in for that God of the Bible. There is no God like that. So you have to f- determine how you're going to communicate that. But just for the sake of argument, we, we came up with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we translated that, and we want to present that. What set of assumptions, cosmologically, are people making about what that means? They're going to be looking at that statement through the lens of their worldview, so just because we say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we, we may well be communicating straight past accurate 
description of truth, right? Because if we apply that statement of truth from our perception as Westerners, that's transparently clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we can get that across to people, but when you apply that in the direction of another worldview, you may be running into barriers that you didn't even know existed unless you took the time to explore them and understand them. You following me? And that's that presuppositional framework that exists there in the mind of a local cultural person that we would never even be aware of unless we do really careful cultural exegesis, unless we do really careful worldview diagnosis to understand. Because then, when you're teaching Genesis chapter 1 and you understand this, then you're going to have to address the question a lot differently, right? You're going to have to be teaching the truth in such a way that you explain the ways in which what the Bible means about in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What did God create? I know for you, Yanomamu, you think your ancestors taught you that the world existed as a four-part parallel structure. Well, guess what? We've now been able to get away from the earth and actually see it in this and that way, so therefore what God created is actually this, not that. But without that kind of worldview exegesis, then we're in a, a tough spot in terms of cross-cultural communication. And you may think that's an extreme example. That's just one minor example of the complexity of communicating cross-culturally in the many, many languages of the world. Um, now, let me just make this closer to home because at this point your head may be spinning and you're saying, well, I don't, I'm not dealing with anybody that I know who believes there are four parallel pieces of dirt and we're, uh, so I don't have to deal with that, okay? How about this? Um, recently, I was talking to my friends in Australia and you can imagine that maybe someone from Australia came up with this map. I don't know if they did or not. I, I just pulled it off the internet. But I was talking with, to friends of mine in Australia and we, because we worked together on various projects, and I said to them, um, hey, so I'm going to come, if, if the borders ever open, their borders, by the way, and I, I make them feel as guilty as possible about that, if their borders ever open, um, then I'll come in the summer and conduct and help you guys with that workshop, right? And they're like, yeah, okay, well, there's a problem there, just so you know, there's a problem. Because when I say summer, I mean June, July, August. That's what I mean. And that, just so you know, that is what summer is, okay? There is no other definition of summer. Well, that's not true for my friends there, right? You guys are getting the drift here. Like, this is summer for them. Santa is on the beach in the summer because it is warm, and he's surfing, all right? That's what Santa's doing. So... There's, there's, there's a set of assumptions about reality that I just bring to the conversation that they would, would bring a different set of assumptions to the conversation. I can, t hey, listen, you know, like there's a certain even indignation we can feel about worldview issues. Like it actually sort of, I, I grew up cross-culturally, but it still can sort of bother me that someone else defines summer differently than me. Like, there's, I'm serious, you guys. Let's be real. Like, our definition of summer is a real one. All the other ones are aberrations, okay? Or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, we hold these kinds of belief systems at a convictional level to the degree that oftentimes they offend us when they're contradicted, even when we don't understand the offense. We just know it feels offensive 
that so, someone violated our worldview assumption, our presupposition of life in this or that area. Okay? So, let me um, just recap where I, what the ground I've covered so far, because I know I've, it's a whirlwind, and I don't want to go too fast, and I, I do want to give you guys time to ask questions, and uh, also do intend to give lots of examples of this kind of cross-worldview issue from Yanomamu culture. That's just the, the culture that I, second culture that I know best. Um, but just to remind you then, we're talking about, and I, I trust you're getting the, the sense of what I mean, this presuppositional framework that occurs for us as a, at a heart level and that affects how we interpret and relate to reality. That, that's what we're talking about with these kinds of worldview issues. And to the degree, to the degree that the cultural distances are greater, I have discovered or determined that there are more, more worldview barriers. To the degree that the distances, the cultural distances are greater, there are more barriers. Um, and I can, I, mean, I can just give you example after example. Uh, and let me, here's an example. We, we were in a Yanomamu village, um, and a lady came staggering out of the jungle. She had obviously just been bitten in the side by a bushmaster as a poisonous snake. We had antivenin, you know, to treat, to try to handle snake bites. It has to be refrigerated, so depending on whether you have a solar fridge or freezer, you can keep it for a while. And we happened to have one, because we were out in the middle of nowhere, and you have to have your own solar system. So that's, there's a worldview difference for you. But, um, so we had antivenin. We had been able to keep it cold for a while. She came staggering out of the jungle. She's already hemorrhaging. You know, so there's something about that venom of this Bushmaster that makes your blood thinner or something. So she start, you start bleeding out, out of your gums. So she's bleeding like this and blood out of her side. She's staggering along the airstrip coming in our direction. And we, we saw her and we went up there. And she, we were asking her, what's, what's happening? And she said, I, well, I was, bit, I was bitten by a snake. How far away were you? And she, you know, they don't, she didn't have a watch, but she, it was clear she had been walking for a better part of an hour or more. And there were two men following along behind her carrying a hammock. Now, in my paradigm, um, there's this lady who's walked for more than an hour with two really healthy men walking along behind her for an hour. Like, that doesn't compute, I'm just saying. That's just, maybe you're different than me, but that just didn't quite compute for me, okay? Like, what are you two guys doing? Like, give me a break, you know? Put, put a pole, I've seen, I've seen Yanomami people string a hammock between a pole. It's, a, it's awkward to carry on the trail, I'll give you that. If you ever tried to carry a swinging hammock down the trail, it's annoying. But it would be better than having this poor lady walk and make the venom get more and more in, in her system in the process of trying to get to treatment. Well, in Yanomamu culture, I found out that those both were her sons-in-law, okay? In Yanomamu culture, mother-in-laws and sons-in-laws don't communicate directly with one another. Now, some of you would say, oh, that's interesting. Maybe we should think about that <laughs> a little more deeply. Maybe that's biblical somehow. No, they don't communicate directly with each other, and they don't share in any kind of interaction, because the, in the Yanomami society, there's this kind of strange, mythologically-based um, fear of incest. 
And that it often has to do with those relationships. And so, in their frame of reference, listen, I'm not, this isn't about the value judgment of whether that needs to, issue needs to change or not. In their frame of reference, these are unbelievers, and they were actually doing the supportive work they thought was right for her by following along with her and making sure she got safely to her destination without breaking the cultural taboo associated with the relationship between sons-in-law and mothers-in-law. So for them, that was the right way to handle the situation. That's a worldview assumption, because there's a, there, it's granted there's a belief that's there, but there's a presupposition about how life actually works in relationships that they're applying to the situation, and that's a default. It's not like they sat down on the trail before they started in our direction and said, let me think. Now, this is a type of situation where some may say that we should carry her, but we've decided today that we're not going to. That's not how it happened. It's a, it's a, it's a set of pressures and a set of uh, ways of operating, believing, valuing, thinking that are, that are coming through a, a presuppositional framework that, that has been a part of their makeup as a cultural group. Right? You follow me there? So that's our, our first question then, is what is a worldview? And um, the definition is that presuppositional framework through which the human heart uh, interprets and relates to reality. Okay, and then we're going to move on to a second question here, what contributes to worldview formation. Any questions you guys have so far? I don't want to overwhelm you. This is, this is kind of heavy, I know. She did live. Yes, she did. We were able to treat her, and she lived. She stayed in a hammock close to our house for a while. But, yep, she did. Not everybody did. We, we dealt with a lot of snake bites, and some, some were not. Um, some people died. But um, Other questions? All right. So let's move on to question two, what contributes to worldview formation? And again, I don't want this to take a lot of time, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna run to the break now. Then we're gonna take a break and we'll talk a little bit afterward and then we're just gonna go straight into a case study kind of example from the Yanomami culture about how this works practically. Okay, so I don't wanna spend a lot of time with words on the screen. But I do want you to think about this with me, that there's, there, even in the Bible, and I know our world takes issue with this, but what primarily contributes to worldview formation is a storied account of reality. So people have a story of reality that they believe. Even naturalists have a story of reality that they believe about the origin of the universe. And that storied account of reality, both it, it accounts for their personal stories, but it also accounts for their corporate story or identity together as, as a storied people. And the biblical example of, of the story of God from creation through new creation is obviously the most clear one that we're connected to. But in other environments, there are stories of reality that exist. And our desire in worldview exegesis is to identify the underlying stories of reality that give impetus to worldview formation. Okay? And I, I, don't, I hope that wasn't any big words. We want to understand practically what are people's stories of life What's the big story that those stories of life are connected to so that we can understand the contributors to worldview formation in their, in their lives? Now, practically speaking, um, a, a, an author named James Sire, I'm sure some of you have heard of him. He's well, relatively well-known. 
He and some others have talked about questions to evaluate worldviews. And these are the kinds of questions I would encourage all of you to have in mind. If you want to have trajectory to the conversations of life that you have with people around you, and you want to move conversations in a redemptive direction, then these are the kinds of questions that, um, that would be helpful for you to ask in the same kinds of ways that we ask these questions of people in Yanomamu language and cultural environments. In fact, part of our language learning curriculum that Justin mentioned is a level of life exchange conversations where we're taking time with local people and it's part of the process of learning culture and language, but it's also part of the process of learning their worldview. We sit down with a, a range of people in those local language and cultural environments and go through these kinds of questions with them, right? So questions like, ultimately we want to understand who do they feel like they are and whose are they? Is there some kind of a, a, a religious system that... Um, swirls around them, perhaps like with the Yanomami people, of these deity figures that exist in the backdrop of life that they have to, the, in the Yanomami's case, they have to appease, manipulate, um, try to, to manage in order to, to achieve success in their lives, or is there some kind of a primary deity figure, or do they believe there's no kind of uh, spiritual entity at all out there, that it's just a material world? Therefore, what impact does that have on who they see themselves as? And, and I'm going to specifically go through that in more detail with you in application to a Yanomamu example. So I don't, I don't want to, again, belabor that too much for, for right this minute before we take a break. Secondly, um, this question of what I have a hard time seeing from that distance, wh what, what and where is reality headed? Um, is there a direction to reality? And, and as Christians, these are the kinds of questions that we would immediately have answers for, again, in the Yanomamu environment, I'm interested in knowing, is there some kind of, is this all going someplace? And if it's going someplace, what is true and how do I know? Because who, who, who is capable of telling me the truth? Is it your ancestors, the Nobadabu, and the stories they passed along to you about the origins of, I, hey, listen, I could tell you all kinds of sto origin stories from the Yanomamu. I'll tell you a couple in, in, in the second half. But they have origin stories about how did this sloth, there's two types of sloths. Here's another piece of useless information for you. There's two types of sloths. One has two claws, one has three. The, the three-clawed sloth is the smaller one. And they, in contrast to the two-toed sloth, they have a white spot on their back. Well, the Yanomami have a story about how the sloth got its white spot on its back, as opposed to the, the two-toed sloth that doesn't have the white spot. And did you know that the jaguar and the armadillo at one point in the past actually exchanged teeth. Did you know that? Did you know that the, that, that the, the millipede actually taught the jaguar how to walk quietly? Did you know that the cassowary bird was actually the one who brought night when he was shot by a certain person? Did you know? Anyway, so my point is, did you know the alligator was the one who gave fire to human beings when they made him laugh and he coughed it up? Um, <laughs> So they have all kinds of stories about existence, but the fact is that we ultimately, uh, this is what we would call our, our epistemology, we ultimately need to know how to know what is true. And we're in a position to need to understand what are the sources of truth that have influenced this group of people such that we know when we bring spiritual or scriptural truth to them, 
How are we, we going to challenge their views of the authority of truth and, and cause them to take seriously the authority of the truth of God's Word? So it's an important question that we ask as we move towards worldview analysis. Number four, what accounts for brokenness and death in the world? The Yandamai would have all kinds of explanations, and I have found it to be the case that cultures, because of the, the pervasiveness, the prevalence of of brokenness and death in the world, people have to know what is happening here. Because it doesn't, there seems to be some chaos that got introduced in the system, and the Yandamamu explained it often in the capriciousness of spiritual reality. So they see this sort of capricious, that means, by the way, for some of you who are younger in the room, who may not understand this, um, I'm pointing at the baby, not you, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, that fickle sort of, uh, like, irrational, just dealing with people poorly kind of approach to things. They, they see that as, as a lot of the way the spiritual reality works, but we need to account for brokenness and death, and we would say as believers we have a, a way to do that. Fifthly, how are these problems resolved? How are these brokenness and death problems resolved? What does this worldview do to account for that, and then how are we going to prepare to respond to that in light of a Christian alternative. And then finally, as a result of what we understand about the world in our worldview, how do we live? What's the way to live this thing out? Uh, and so what we want to do is we want to go into a situation and uncover the answers to these kinds of questions because they help us to dig down at that assumptive framework, that presuppositional framework through which people are interpreting reality. It's like, in, in, and I'll just tell you, like, and we'll take a break, it's like in these kinds of environments that there's such an insularity because there's been such a lack of exposure for many of them in terms of alternative views of the world. So there's this kind of insularity that makes it such that when you come in and describe alternatives, it's, that's really new for people. Like, the, uh, to be honest with you, like, the, in terms of ethnocentrism, I know Americans can be perceived as ethnocentric, and I'll give you, I'll just give you credit for that. All of us, me too, you know, I'm American, I have a passport. Um, we can be ethnocentric, um, but the Yanomamu people, the word Yanomamu means human being, just so you know, and everybody else is something else. So there's the Yanomamu people, they're the humans, and then there's the rest of us. Welcome to the world, okay? So I'm just telling you there's a lot of that kind of thinking, and we have to uncover those presuppositional assumptions of life in order to be able to identify the ways in which truth needs to impact that environment such that they can really be affected by the communication of the Scriptures in, in meaningful terms. That's what missiologists who… a lot of people don't like the word contextualization, but I also don't like the word syncretism in terms of its outcome. Syncretism is when you mishmash, when you, when you take a set of religious ideas or a set of cultural ideas and you apply them to another system at a level other than the worldview level. You apply them at some more superficial level than the worldview level, and the outcome is just this, this conglomeration of unclear, now mixed up cultural uh, joining of ideas that doesn't provide clarity in, in the truth the Scriptures 
And so what we have to be able to do is to address these kinds of issues at that presuppositional level, such that people are understanding the way the story of the Scriptures really impacts their hearts and causes an opportunity for change at that kind of level. And I hope you're at least getting the idea that requires significant investment in culture and language acquisition. I hope you're getting the idea. I mean, I've sat for hundreds of hours with Yandamamu people and listened to them tell their myths. And it's a fun event to sit around with a group of guys, you know, and they're telling these myths and they're, they're telling the story of how the alligator coughed up fire and the birds, you know, the birds got their colors from that, by the way, just so you know. Like the ones who are red, they got burned the most because they tried to grab the fire from the alligator and carry it away and they got burned. And then some of the others, and the toucan, by the way, you know what a toucan is? Some people call it a toucan. I object. I call it a toucan. That's just my thing, you know, because tucano, right? I mean, it's a word in another language. So anyway, the mayebu, that's the Yanomama word for it, the mayebu has a long beak because he was lazy when they were chopping down trees to try to get down this guy who fled into a tree after he killed somebody. And he sat back and didn't go up and actually do any work with his machete beak. And so, therefore, you know, the macaw and some of the other birds, their beaks got worn down, but the, the Mayebu, the toucan, he, he kept his long beak because he was lazy. Just another piece of useless information that you didn't need to know. Okay, we're going to take a break, and then uh, we'll come back. What are we, 15 minutes, something like that? All right, let's take a break. I don't want to finish late, so I'm on the same page with you. Hey, and... Um, just to be clear, again, the reason why we're talking about these kinds of issues is because these are the significant barriers that we're in a position working cross-culturally of trying to overcome in order to be effective. And that's why when you hear people talk about strategies that are quick in missions, I have a lot of questions to ask. It's kind of like when someone tells me they speak eight languages. I just want to, like, can you unpack that for me? Like, did you one time speak one of those better? <laughs> anyway, I have lots of questions because I've been exposed to a lot of languages over the course of time. So, and again, so just to be clear for you guys, we're, we're talking about the kinds of areas where the most significant barriers occur. And I, I want to give you examples of that from the Yanomami setting. Uh, let me just very quickly give you an overview of this conversation from another worldview frame of reference in terms of answering the question, what contributes to worldview formation, okay? And I'm not going to take a lot of time with this because most of this you will have, have a background for already. We'll spend almost all of our time in a Yanomamu set of examples, and then I'll give you time to ask questions about that if you have them. Um, so, you hear the conversation in the world about the influences of nature and nurture, right? You hear this, right? What's nature for, for people just in general in our society? What is nature? nature when we're talking about the, the, the word as used in the sense of nature and nurture. Yeah, DNA, what your, what your genetic makeup is. Yeah, I know outdoors is one definition of nature, but that's, that's not the one I'm thinking of. Um, that, but that's true. Yeah, who you are in genetic makeup, and oftentimes even excuses are given in our world for the influences of nature on us. And then nurture, then, what is nurture? Yeah, what you learn, your upbringing. 
And so we would, we would say that no matter what the cultural environment, we have to have a very clear biblical explanation of nature, okay? Because we think that the Bible speaks very specifically to the outcomes of our natures, and not just because of our genetics, because of our makeup as human beings based on what the Scriptures teach, and that the Scriptures set that makeup, that nature, within specific contexts of nurture that, that are, are influenced or affected by God and then fallenness, right? Are you, are you following me so far? And I'm going to apply that specifically to the Yandamamu environment. Again, I'm not going to take a lot of time with this. Um, and I, I do want you also to come away with an understanding of the difference that I'm making between culture and worldview, because I'm not using those two terms synonymously, by the way. So let me just say that really quickly for you, okay? So culture is the set of behaviors, beliefs, and values that express the, the worldview of a person, but it's not the interpretive framework itself. People come to life with a certain set of lenses on based on the na- their natures and nurtures, based on the environments they've grown up in, the kinds of influences that, that have been had in their lives, and those are expressed in cultural forms, but the two things are not synonymous. Culture and, and worldview are not synonymous. So worldview is that presuppositional framework now, as Christians, uh, this whole issue is really important because just, and you guys know the biblical story, but think about it with me in, in these kinds of terms, and I'm about to contrast that with the Yanomamu scenario, that we were created in God's image, and He placed us in a unique context. He, he created us to be people who, in covenant relationship with Him from the very beginning, He was our, our loving Father and I'm talking about R as in Adam and Eve in the garden, the loving father who placed them in a specific environment of his nurture. And God was their instructor. So God was teaching them. He, he was teaching them in knowledge of the trees of the garden and the tree that they shouldn't eat of. He was teaching them in the event of Adam naming the animals, right? That's a, a learning event for Adam. And he's teaching and instructing Adam in relationship to his acquiring a spouse, and God calling that situation very good when Adam acquired a spouse. So God was the instructor working with obedient sons and daughters and servant kings and queens who were stewarding God's creation in that time period. God was the one who was managing the nature and nurture of Adam and Eve, okay? But they decided that in their thoughts, affections, and behaviors that they would Make, they would manage that nature and nurture for themselves in defiance of God's principles and in defiance of that, that obedient relationship with God as the caretaker so that they decided to betray the loyal love and trust that God had demonstrated toward them by defying His commands. And that means that the, there was a marring, a disfiguring of the image of God in human beings, not destroyed, because we would, we would all argue that every human being maintains uh, uh, um, the image of God as by virtue of being a human being, but there's a marring, a disfiguring of the representation, that image represented in the world because of the effect of sin and fallenness. And so, uh, they were removed from the place of God's care, and we probably don't understand 
you think about the significance of them being placed out of Eden. They were now east of Eden. They were out of the place where God had designed a, a unique context for their nurture in His care. And as a result, um, they had, the, had to deal with a fallen world around them. So when I think about the kinds of worldviews that we see, like the Yanomamu worldview or some of the many others that we've seen in the world, I think about the impact of that fallenness and the grappling with this broken world system without an explanation of the, of the reason why they, the world system is what it is. Now, by God's common grace, in God's sovereignty, when we talk about God's common grace, there's, there, there are scriptures that talk about the rain falling on the just and the unjust. Have you, you, you with me there? So there's a sense in which we all collectively, even as unbelievers, the Yandamaiu people receive aspects of God's common grace, the fact that they can grow plants and they can hunt and they can survive more than a, a, a second before they're uh, judged and, and uh, destroyed. Uh, the, the fact that they have an existence at all means that they're experiencing God's common grace. So God's common grace preserves us even in the kind of broken environments where we live, but the fact is that we all know that the only solution to the problem is God's redemptive work through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're, we're, we are, just so you know, we're exclusivists, okay? We're not inclusivists. We are those who are not, we're not universalists. We don't believe that there are many ways to heaven. We don't believe that the Yandamamu can have unique, they, have, they believe in lots of dreams and visions, but we don't believe that they can dream and vision their way to a right relationship with God. We believe that someone has to go and learn that language and culture in order to communicate the truth of the Scriptures per Romans chapter 10 in such a way that they can understand the redemptive message of the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ such that they too can hope forward towards the eventual new creation when God recreates the heaven and earth and resolves this issue of brokenness. Like Romans chapter 8 tells us that the whole creation is groaning in anticipation of God making this right. I, I've been in the garden with the Atta people in Papua New Guinea after they became believers and I remember when I was still learning language there I was out in the garden, and I heard someone yelling really loud, like, and I, I couldn't quite make out what they were saying, and they, I, it, was, it was a one word, like, ah, da, da, you know, and so I was, I, I, a, a pastor colleague of mine, his name is Kaiko, I asked Kaiko, hey, Kaiko, I hear these guys yelling, and he said, yeah, you know what they're saying? He said, this is such hard work to do all this gardening for us, because we have to do all this by hand, you know, you cut down all the stuff, you burn it. You plant, it's, and there's no equipment except for a machete and hose. He says, we're yelling the name of Adam. We're yelling, Adam, because we have learned that he's the one who's responsible for this predicament we're in, right? But the, because they're longing forward towards that new creation, and in the meantime, opportunity to be recreated in the, in the person of Lord Jesus Christ and to be becoming new creation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right, 17? So that's, that's the worldview that we're building toward, just to be abundantly clear. I don't want you to think that somehow what I'm describing is a building toward some other explanation that sort of kind of hits the truth and sort of kind of doesn't. We're talking about a clear communication of the biblical message, but to get to the point, 
to be able to communicate that. That seems like a real simple, almost like four spiritual laws, you know, you could come up with. But I'm just, I'm telling you, it's not easy to get there in culture and language terms. So, I've, we've talked about what a worldview is, that presuppositional framework. We've talked a little bit about what these contributors to worldview formation, storied accounts of reality, um, expressed in local cultural content. And then just briefly, I want to talk to you about how worldviews change. And I want to give you four diagnostic tests that we frequently use cross-culturally as we're exploring worldviews. Um, and, and I think they could be helpful for you here even, but especially thinking of them as applies cross-culturally as we think about how worldviews change. Let me just say clearly and emphatically, worldviews change when biblical truth gets applied through the power of the Holy Spirit to people's hearts and lives, period, right? That's the bottom line reality of the situation. But in order to get to the point where that kind of clear communication can take place, God puts us in a position as his servants to have to do a lot of digging and exploring and um, learning to, to be able to get into people's lives in such a way that we can be, be good stewards of a responsibility for communication. And that, that's the challenge I, I feel like we face uh, as cross-cultural communicators. So let me just give you four tests to consider. Now, I'm going to quiz you on these, so you, you got to be ready, okay? And then we're going to talk about Yanomami examples. So you got, you're going to have to pay attention, so get ready. I might call you out because I'm just that kind of person. No, I'm not really, but I make like you feel like I might be. Um, the, uh, number one test is a test of fulfilled existence. And I just, you know, it was, it was Pascal, the, the scientist in the Enlightenment period, I believe, who said, you've heard this before, that the human heart has a, a God-shaped vacuum that only can be filled by God, right? And th that sounds a little bit sentimental, um, and, you know, so, but nonetheless, regardless of whether it sounds sentimental or not, th there's a sense in which God has placed eternity in the hearts of men, and humans are looking for us a solution to the problem of existence that is truly fulfilling, and so when, the reason I'm saying that is because as we work through these worldview diagnostics with local people and we ask these kinds of worldview questions to try to set ourselves up to prepare to teach the Scriptures, and that's what we're doing. We're working through this worldview process to try to set ourselves up to teach the Scriptures. That's going to mean oftentimes teaching people to read and write. I, I remember in high school and, and then as an adult in ministry myself teaching local people how to read and write alongside parents and grandparents. And, and it's interesting to be in a position where you yourselves created the alphabet that represents the language of the people that you're teaching to read and write, and then you're teaching them to read and write their own language that you learned and wrote the, and helped them to develop an alphabet for. It's just a, it's kind of a strange experience. But to creating alphabets, teaching people to read and write, translating the scriptures, developing teaching resources to teach the scriptures. And in the process of that, if we haven't done the worldview digging, then how are we going to address the true questions of which aspects of their worldview demonstrate that their existence is not as fulfilling as the Bible intends for it to be? It doesn't have the spiritual joy and peace in it that the Bible intends for it to have. It doesn't allow opportunity for love to be manifest from the human soul in the way that God intends for that love to be manifest. And there are so many other fruits of the Spirit we could talk about that from a Christian framework, 
They demonstrate a fulfillment of existence that only and uniquely exists in a Christian story of existence and not in other of these worldviews. Secondly, a test of evidence. And here we mean um, the idea that, uh, that the worldview has to account for all the data that exists in the world. It can't just account for part of the data. In, in the Yanomamu case, there's certain aspects of that that are fairly straightforward. I mean, you, you're, you're getting the idea that we could talk about being able to be in a spaceship or in, using a telescope and looking at the world and recognizing that there aren't four parallel layers. That would be a way in which they're not accounting for all the evidence that exists about how the world works and what, what the world is made up of, and I'll give you some other examples of that as well. And then thirdly, a, a, a test of existential possibility. Can you actually live fruitfully this way? In other words, if I religiously and dogmatically apply this worldview, can I live this way? I, I was talking to a friend of mine from India, and he, um, he said that in India there, there's a sense in which in Hindu background thinking that people can hold contradictory views at the same time. And so the law, you know, one of the laws of logic is the law of non-contradiction. And you, you know what non-contradiction means. You, two things can't be true both at the same time. Either one's true or the other's true. And he said, you know, Indians will say that, but I notice that when some of my Indian brothers and sisters cross the street and the bus is coming, they still realize that either they get out of the way of the bus or the bus kills you. It runs you over. In other words, the law of non-contradiction applies practically in life experience. We can't escape it. So the question there is, is it really possible to apply the worldview to all aspects of life in such a way that you can practically live it out, that you can live that way, that you can fruitfully um, abide by the, the tenets of the worldview? And then finally, and fourthly, is it logically consistent? Do all parts of the worldview agree with all other parts? Um, I remember talking with the Atta believers, or this is pre-believers in New Guinea, and they, we were playing soccer, and um, one of the old, older gentlemen came frustrated walking up to us. It was a group of us um, playing soccer. He came up to us and he said, hey, you guys, you've got to stop playing soccer because I just tied up my sugar cane and um, if you're playing soccer, making a lot of loud noise, that when you tie up the sugar cane, it won't grow straight up. It'll just wilt and, and develop this kind of blight and fall over. Well, you know, I have a few questions, right? Like about the logical consistency. I don't want to be a smart aleck. I, I do want to be a smart aleck, but I don't want to be a smart aleck. You know, I don't want to. So I'm, but I, I'm, I'm talking to the guy sitting next to me and saying, hey, Talmusi, like, so, explain to me how that works. Like, does a sugar cane have ears? Are they supersonic ears? Like, they can hear from here to two miles away in the garden. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a logical inconsistency there that the worldviews need to be, to be addressing. And, and so, these, I'm, I'm giving you those uh, for two reasons. One, because those are really common ways that we think through pre-evangelism in cross-cultural terms. Um, in other words, before evangelism, we want to see if the worldview, as we understand it, if it, if it, what are the ways in which these kind of tests fail? And then as we pre prepare to teach scriptural truth, then we can highlight some of those worldview failures and, 
and allow the, the truth of the Scripture to show, to show forth or to shine through into these areas where there are deficiencies in the way that people are understanding reality. So, so I'm going to reorder these for you. I just want you to try to remember them. And I don't like this reordering just inherently because I reordered it into the acronym FEEL. And by definition, that's tough for me, you know, because how do you feel? Like, it just puts things all in the wrong sequence. But, you know, you and I can both survive it together. So we're going to go with the acronym FEEL, okay? And so FEEL, the F is going to be fulfillment, all right? And what, is, what does fulfillment mean? Does anybody remember generally what I, what I meant by fulfillment? Yeah, like how, yeah, how, how effective, effectively, um, how well does the worldview address your sense of solution to problems? How, how fulfilled does the worldview leave you, okay? And then there's an E here that I'm going to call evidence, and do you, anybody remember evidence? What, what, what evidence am I talking about? I know this is a bit challenging. I'm not going to kill you with it. Evidence, meaning all of the empirical or the evidence in the world around us, to what extent do we, are we able to account for all that evidence within the confines of the worldview, okay? So is the worldview fulfilling to us as human beings? Does it fulfill the deep uh, longings of our soul? Does it match up to the evidence? Can you exist, thirdly, can you exist consistently in light of that worldview? So is it can you really live that way? And I, I would argue, and I'll show you some examples of ways, senses in which for the young mind, it's very difficult to live in light of their own worldview. And then the L, does anybody remember that? The logic. So is it logically consistent in all aspects, right? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just flip these up for you. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have them on the slide up there as I go through some of these uh, Yanomam examples and allow you to ask questions if you want to about a, a Yanomamu view of working through a, a worldview framework like this so you can understand practically what we're talking about in our last 20 minutes or so here, okay? And I, I want to give you an opportunity to, to interact with this so that you get a sense of what this looks like and feels like practically as we're learning our way in. Um, now, you remember that I said that the Yanomamu cosmology is this four-layered kind of reality and, um, you know, for the Yanomami, their ancestors, so in these stories of reality, I told you that worldviews are formed, part of the formative, part, the, part of the formation of a worldview has to do with a storied account of reality within a special, a specific cultural context. Well, the Yanomami believe that their previous ancestors were these historical figures and the Yanomamu people, so the true people, the human beings, so Yai, I know this, we could have a long conversation about this, but in John 3.16, the verse says in one of the translations, Yaibaratanu, which is God, Yanoma, you can hear this, so God for God, Yanomamu, Yaibaratanu, Yanomamu Wamaku. So God so loved the Yanomamu, Right? Because the, what, they, what, they, what they were trying to work out in that translation was how do you de describe humanity as a whole? And in, the, in Yanomamu language, the way to describe humanity as a whole is to use the word Yanomamu. And the reason why 
is because the Yanomami believed that there was a time in the ancient past, in the stories of the ancestors, the Nobadabu, when a man whose name was Moon uh, was he was married to a girl that he got angry with, and so he killed her. And when he killed her, he packaged some of her, no, sorry, guys, if there's any, I won't make this too graphic, but he packaged parts of her into, the Yanomami use a certain type of leaf to wrap up um, meat in the jungle. If you hunt, you always, you never bring back an animal whole, you always dress it in the jungle and package it. So they package it with a certain leaf and vine. And so he packaged her and caused her mother, her mother to eat some of her own daughter, okay? Well, at some point in, in the story, the mother realized that's what had happened. And so she got angry, and she called out to this archer, this person who was good with a bow and arrow, and, and told him, this man named Moon, Bannibal, caused me to eat part of my own daughter, and so the man named Moon started to flee. And as he was fleeing, he was rising into the sky in the form of the moon. And the archer took his bow and he shot the moon. And he shot the moon, and as he shot the moon, the moon started to bleed. And the, the, the places on the moon that you see that are discolored are part of that blood stain from the man who's called Moon. And at the drops of blood that fell onto the ground, they didn't hit the ground. Most of them fell onto a group of people. And that group of people are the Yanomamu people. And that blood falling on them caused them to be what the Yanomamu call waiteri, which is translated oftentimes as something like, like aggressive, dominant, um, the true humans, the ones who have the might makes right authority in the world. And so that myth of, of reality justifies a lot of what they perceive, given their circumscribed environment that they live in, this, this immersed in the jungle environment that's surrounded by all kinds of um, versions of sickness and death and every other thing, that's, that helps them to feel justified in the way that the Yanomami men see their role and responsibility as good men to be dominant in society. So in this kind of environment, um, the people, the Yanomami people believe, like if we're thinking about those world question, worldview questions, they believe that sickness and death are caused spiritually. They don't believe that sickness and death are caused primarily through some kind of scientific system. So, for example, if, if a person, I remember, you know, a young man got bit by a snake and he died in the community we were in, or a person who dies of malaria, which is fairly commonplace, or a child dies as, at a young age because of malnutrition. We would ascribe malaria, malnutrition, or a snake bite as causation for those deaths for the Yanomami people. They would not. They would ascribe that someone in another community spiritually created a circumstance to, to send, in effect, a hex or witchcraft to kill that person. So then the Yanomami men, because they're the one who, f who received the drops of blood from the moon, who's, who and whose are they? They're the ones who are responsible to interact with these spirit beings to, be, to display the kind of manhood that they, they're responsible for, which means they're supposed to determine who, is who caused that death and go and take revenge by killing a person from the community where that death was caused. So there's, there can be this continual reciprocal um, uh, kind of 
revenge killing that occurs. And we've seen lots and lots of examples of that. And the, the long-term destinations of human souls are ambiguous, so there, there's this sense in which the spirits of the living are affected, or the, the lives of the living are affected by these wandering spirits. So if they don't avenge a death, then they're affected by the people who's, who, who have died who have not yet been avenged. So a lot of the reality of life for them has to do with responsibility to maintain that, that, uh, that avenging of, of death. Um, so this idea of who and whose are they, they're living, if we, and if we look at these, these questions, uh, you think about the, the idea of fulfilled existence. This is a very difficult way to live. It's a very hard, uh, it's very hard to see real expressions of joyfulness and peace and lack of fear, um, true gratitude for even the, the, the perception of God at work in the world. Even if, even if all that they could see potentially is a Psalm 19 or a, uh, you know, a Psalm 19 kind of the heavens display the glory of God, if that was all that they could see, that would be something to be grateful for. But because they're so steeped in this sense of responsibility to interact with this really precarious spirit world around them, and they, they could be attacked at any time. Here's the thing. If, if someone in our community, so the first time we ran into the, the Yanama people, um, they were fleeing. This was a community we, were, we, were, we did a bunch of survey trips in this big area with a small airplane. So there's a couple small Cessna airplanes that we would use commonly there. I wasn't, I'm not a pilot, but we had a couple of organizations that would fly for us. We flew over their area. We marked communities with a GPS. We landed at an interior airstrip, which is just a grass runway. And then we, then we just had to chop our way by trail into these locations and find the communities. And um, we tried to let them know we were coming. You know, there was no way to let them know we were coming. So we walk into these communities, and we tended to surprise people because they wondered what in the world we were doing out there. But the first time we finally found the Kashibuteri people, which is a, a village particularly we were looking for that was a central spoken language version of the Yanoma, um, they, we, we were walking south on the trail, and they were running, they were fleeing north. And there were a couple of the guys who had shaved heads. And I knew what that meant because I had grown up in the big picture of Yanomami culture. Even though it was a related, different language, it was still culturally, there were some similarities. And I knew, I knew that when you shave your head like that, you're, you're performing what the Yanomami call an unokain ritual, which is you've just killed somebody. And you're, you're going through a ceremony of not eating certain foods and shaving your head to get through that having just... So they had just speared a young man to death. Why? Because the leader of their community ascribed a death that had occurred in their village from malaria to a spiritual cause from the village who lived south of them. So they went down to that village and snuck up on them early in the morning. A person came out, a young a teenager came out of the village in, to you know, to use the restroom or whatever, they speared the guy, that person and fled. So we're walking on the trail to try to find them at the community where they're living, what, that we had marked with a GPS, and they're fleeing away, very fearful of the fact of being pursued by this other community of people who, of course, didn't have any idea that they had, had caused a death, right? So you understand the point. That's a very difficult life to live in terms of fulfillment. Very difficult. 
It's a very difficult live, life to live in terms of understanding the evidence of reality because there's not an accounting for all the evidence. There's not an accounting for the order of God's creation. There's not an accounting for the order of God's creation on the level of germs and disease, right? That's part of the order of God's creation. There's not an accounting for um, the, the, the fact of trying to live faithfully according to that worldview. It's very difficult to do because they're living in this persistent responsibility to avenge death. And then finally, in logical terms, it's, it, you find contradictions logically in cause and effect, and you're trying to help people to, to help these local folks understand what would resolve some of those logical contradictions in terms of cause and effect in their environments. And, and it puts also ladies and children in a position to be, when they think of who and who, whose are they, and what's the meaningfulness of their existence, well, they're not on the same level as men in Yanomami society. They're, they're less than, um, they're less than, they're human, but they're not, they don't have the same value. So in Yanomami society, if a, if a wife, if a husband is wanting to have a son, which is common, and he, said, he can say to his wife, if it's a girl, you, when that baby's born, just kill it uh, because I don't want a girl. We need, we, we need to have a boy, and so if, when that child is born, if it's a girl, just kill it. So there's a lot of uh, female infanticide. If in Yanomami society, again, just one of these areas that's common in the world, if twins are born, identical twins, and you think about the lack of scientific understanding of the identical twins, there's this strange spiritual reality for the Yanom- in the Yanomamu mind. Wait a second, there are these two pa- babies that look exactly alike. That's strange to them. So what do we do with this? Well, at least we have to try to determine which one of them is stronger spiritually and which one is weaker, and then we kill the weaker one. Because we can't, we can't have two people possessing some sort of amalgamated same spiritness by virtue of the fact that they look alike. So you almost never would see, in fact, I can't even remember a time when I've ever seen a set of twins, identical twins alive in any village, in any Yanomami community I've ever been in. Never seen one. Um, so the value of human life is, is, is diminished as a result of a kind of story of reality about hu- who human beings are and what they're responsible for in society. And that means that in answering these worldview questions, then men have more uh, dignity than their wives, that they can have multiple wives, that they, we've seen some of the most horrendous spousal abuse in these kind of environments because um, there's just a certain way in which men have the ability to maim or, or beat or treat really badly their children or their wives. I remember a situation among many. I could tell you stories till the cows come home. Um, this kid, so fish hooks aren't that common there, and uh, so the, this family had a fish hook, and I know that seems silly to you, but it meant something to them. They had gotten a fish hook somewhere, and in the process of, of um, the wife was carrying the fish hook on a necklace that she made just to keep it from getting lost. Because you've you got to keep in mind, you see in more clothes here in these pictures for the sake of etiquette than sometimes are the case. Um, and so the fish hook got stuck in her baby's skin, 
And um, so they came to us, and I, I knew I was going to have to cut the fish hook. Like, if you've ever tried to get a fish hook out of your skin, if you've ever po- I've d- had that happen a couple times. You almost always have to cut off the back of the fish hook and pull it out because the barb is going to get stuck on the front end. And so it was stuck in the baby's skin, and the mom was carrying the baby, and she was crying already because she felt responsible. You know, normal human emotion, right? I mean, if you accidentally got a fish hook stuck in your... And the father was there, and I could tell he was angry. And this was the typical. Now, sometimes we as Westerners can have this same kind of feeling, even if we don't act on it quite this way. We can get irritated about dumb stuff too. But so he was mad, and I could tell. So the mom comes up holding the baby. The baby's crying and got a fish hook stuck in its arm. And the father was getting madder and madder, and he just, just hauled off and slugged her right in the head as they're standing there with me, and, um, and I, <laughs> so there are certain moments when I would like to react in a certain kind of way, okay? And so, my point is, is that he felt perfectly justified in, can you, can you imagine in our, in our society, if, if someone were to do that, if you were in a public setting and, you, and a man just up and punched his wife in the head, there would be a, re- a set of repercussions here. And, but in that context, it didn't mean much because that was just the norm of life. That was the way that the stories of life had configured the perception of reality there such that that was not uncommonly um, done. And so, yeah, it took a little bit for me to um, not reciprocate uh, kind for kind in that situation and get the fish hook out of the baby's arm without... Um, any more punching anybody in the head. Um, but my point is, is that um, in Yandamama cultural life, they're, they're still trying to answer these same fundamental questions. Who and whose are we? What, what, what's, the, what's the ultimate truth of reality? What is truth? So for Yandamama people, it's those stories of the Nobadabu, the ancestors that help to define reality. And I can tell you that truths aren't, they're not a fixed body of content that never varies because they're oral stories. They're not written down. So I, I collected some Yanomamu myths when I was in college for a senior thesis project, and you, get, you see lots of variation in those myths, those stories that I've described to you about where things come from. Um, but there's always that, that kind of ambiguous spiritual component and so, when they talk about how do we know what's true, they refer back to the, the mythological content that they've, that's been passed down to them from their ancestors. And so, in order to fix the problem, move into that question, in order to fix the problem, they have to find ways to appease or deal with this spiritual reality. Um, one of the ways they do that, which is really interesting and, and troublesome, in terms of how we think of it, is the Yanomamu practice what we call, what anthropologists call endocannibalism. So if, if um, I've stood many times, in fact, some of my, to be honest with you, some of the most moving reality points for me in this kind of environment, and that cemented in my heart the need to invest my own life in this work, were times when we stood in the smoke of burning bodies. Because when you stand in the smoke of a burning body, you don't tend to forget it. And they, the, the Yanomamu, they burn the bodies of those who've died, and they do it on purpose, and they do it for a specific reason. 
Because when the body finally gets burned up, and you see, and, and the reason those memories are so poignant for me is not only because of the smoke of a burning body and you're standing there and everybody, but you've got, you've got this whole group of related family members standing around this body. They've painted their faces black with ash and a, and a certain kind of uh, dye that comes from the jungle. They, they're weeping and wailing for two to three days until they're so hoarse they can't even, they, they, no sound will come out of their mouth because they're so hoarse from weeping and wailing in what looks a lot like hopelessness. And they are doing that until that body is so consumed that all that remains is the bones. And then the family members get the bones out of the fire fireplace there. It's not a fireplace, but out of that burned location, and they crush the bones up. And then they put the bones into gourds. And they'll take a portion of that um, bone crushed up mixture, and they'll put it into a, a drink. And the family members will regularly consume the bones. By, and, and they're doing that to remember their responsibility to avenge the, the death of their lost one. So a lot of the how then shall we live for the Yanomami people has to do with the fact that they're the fierce ones who descended from the moon. They're the ones whose truth was passed on by the ancestors. They're the ones who have the responsibility to explain brokenness and death through this spiritual reality around them. They're the ones who have the responsibility to take revenge for those deliberately caused spiritual deaths by others in, other, in communities um, that are not their own. And the, one of the interesting things about this for the Yanomami people is that they, um, they don't fight they, their warfare. This has been something that anthropologists have looked into for a long time. We have a different explanation for this than they do. But they don't fight with other ethnic groups. They fight amongst themselves. So their, their warfare is occurring between other Yanomami communities, not between them and other of the ethnic groups that exist in the broader area around them, which is peculiar. Um, but, you know, what our explanation would be is what Romans 1 tells us, right? They, they didn't know God, and they didn't know how to glorify Him as God, and they became darkened and vain in their own speculations, and professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of God for an image that was corruptible, uh, a, a bird or a four-footed animal or a crawling creature. And so God gave them up. And I tell you, that's sobering, and what I don't want, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to make you think that the Yanomamu people are so other and so bizarre that you can't relate. I have thought many times, because I've lived in these places, what would it have been like if by the interesting twist of God's work, I had been born a Yanomamu person. What would I have been? I would have been in the same predicament they were. If you had been born somewhere else, in some other worldview system, you would have been in the same predicament, making the same kinds of choices, influenced by the same sets of decisions and same lack of understanding of aspects of God's reality. So praise God on the one hand that we've had the opportunities and access to truth that we have had, it creates responsibility for us, but it shouldn't make us less inclined to be 
responsible to share truth with others either. Because there's a, there's a common humanity. Some of the best times of my life are times shared with the Yanomami people. In the, I mean, I've walked, I don't know, I, could say, I have to say hundreds of hours in the jungle with Yanomami people. A hunting and going to other villages and doing survey trips. And I could tell you lots of stories about the exchange of life that's just fun. We just had a lot of enjoyable times together. I, you know, I remember my, my dad and I, my dad was planting churches there, and the, one of the elders from his community, his name was Pepito, he went with us into one of, to survey the Yanama, um, and, and I know we have to stop. Um, he went with us to survey the Yanama, and he, he uh, on the way, he was going to dry my dad's shoes by the fire. We were two days away from the airstrip, okay, walking. And Pepito, he woke, up, he woke up in the middle of the night and he said, wow, this fire is just really extra warm and it feels great. It's for, we haven't had to put as much wood on it as we would have expected. And as you can imagine, my dad's shoe was on fire. So we had this, and we just laughed and laughed because my dad had to take a flip-flop, put a sock on, put a flip-flop on, put duct tape on his foot and try to walk for two days with a duct taped uh, foot and it was all Pepito's fault. I mean, it's just, it was fun. You know, there were moments for my dad when it wasn't so fun. But we have, we've had lots of opportunities to relate in the commonness of humanity, but at the same time, we recognize that we share um, a perspective of, of need before God and, and a need to be conscious of these kinds of worldview barriers. You know, they're just since to stop. There are 7,139 living languages in the world, 7,139, last I saw a statistic, and over 3,000 of them still are in positions where they don't have access to the truth of the Scriptures, over 3,000, so almost half of the languages of the world, and many of those are located in parts of the world where it's hard to be a missionary in identity and live there, because the countries, the governments don't receive missionaries, so you have to take up a business or some other identity to be able to be there. So just to challenge you guys tonight, my point was to help you to see what worldview is, how worldviews are formed, and some of the ways that we, we try to address worldview change in cross-cultural situations like this. Any questions that you have? I know our time's up. Any, any questions from you guys? Yeah. That's exactly right. I, I, when you, the average life expectancy for Yanomami people is, is late 30s. The older people either get left behind, they die of illness, um, they, they, there's, there are times when they'll just leave them in the jungle, honestly, leave them behind um, because they're on the move and they, they, they move around a lot. But everyone knows multiple people who have been um, shot to death by bows and arrows or speared to death. So there's just so much revenge killing that, yeah, you don't see a lot of older people. Yeah. Yeah, the Waodani people. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities. I, I, read, an, I read a book recently about that, and there's, there, there are four divisions of the Waodani people, and they did something very... I, I was surprised at how similar they seem to the Yanomami. Yeah, that's right. A lot of spears, bows and arrows, revenge killing. Yep, a lot of similarities. Spiritually caused deaths. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it that that you know I was you you guys have probably heard uh, Rosaria Butterfield's testimony. Have some of you heard that? It's super good because it's an example of, and this is what I, where I'm headed with this. It's an example of an adult who is who is confronted with worldview change, and over the course of multiple years of people of a pastor and his wife challenging her to consider an alternative that she began to contemplate the possibility of making that significant of a change. And that's the real challenge, is you're dealing with adults who need significant and sustained relationally-based exposure to an alternative. And that's just hard work. You know, it takes a lot of time to be, be alongside, to invest life into life. Some of the most significant connecting points are when, you're, you know, when your family gets sick too, and you're dealing with malaria, and people see, no, you're just a human being. You're making decisions out here alongside these guys for, for no, it's not helping me any to be out here. But the, I mean, the short answer is it just takes time of c- consistent and faithful character demonstrated and truth explained. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you know, we, we would introduce, and it's generational, you guys can imagine this, older generations can be more skeptical, but we would introduce National Geographic accounts of, you know, pictures of the solar system, and we would start to teach basic math, science, reading and writing, because when you teach reading and writing, then people have access to a lot more. So we would teach concepts like that, and we, we found that people would receive those fairly well, especially as you move down the, the ladder of generations. Most of the time, I don't remember them describing that to witchcraft uh, as, a, as a natural response. We did find that certain of the older folks, you can, again, you guys can imagine, like, if your life is built around a certain identity, like as a shaman, as a witch doctor, and someone comes in and challenges your power position, that's, that's tough to take. And so some of the most resistant people are, the, are those who, are, who are stand to lose the most power. But we found, but by and large, that there was a lot of receptivity to hearing alternatives like that um, explained. Yeah. Yeah, and I read some of that too. I mean, yeah, the, it's it's been it's just really. Um, impactful for me to, to have seen examples of true understanding of the message of the gospel. Because when you look at that meta-narrative framework, really what we have is that, you know, we have some, some questions about who God is. We have questions about, a question about who man is. We have a question about who Christ is. And then how should we respond in light of that? It's just, it's, it's a presentation really of the gospel. Um, but in a, in a much more worked out Meta narrative because when when we teach we're teaching from Genesis forward because we have to explain the foundational truths of the Bible in order for people to understand the gospel. You can't just say Jesus God had a son, 
his name was Jesus, he died for your sins, boy, I got a lot of questions if I'm a young my own person. I mean, man. But to, to be able to explain the meta narrative of the Scriptures in such a way that when you're starting to see those redemptive illustrations in the Bible, the sacrificial system, the promise of a Messiah to come, um, the, the one who would make all things right, God's intended redemptive plan, and you're building towards Christ, and just to see the lights come on for people, and they understand that they can be free of their burden of sin. They can put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's just great to see that truth connect cross-culturally, and then to see people's lives change. Some of the most faithful Christians that I know are Atta believers, honestly, New Guinean pastors who've been working for many years in ministry, and that you don't know their names, but they're sacrificial ministers of the gospel in hard and difficult, they're difficult places, dark and difficult places, and they're faithfully serving there. So you have brothers and sisters that you don't know who are living out the truth of the gospel, and you only get to know them when you see them in heaven, but they're there. And they're doing that faithful work, and they're representing the reality of what the church actually means. It's the church, right? Because we're talking about church planting. That's what we're talking about. And you'll hear more about that next week from Greg and Ayuna, too, which will be good. Was there another question? Yeah. Yeah, like, and, and especially in cultures... Um, yeah, man. I mean, we were talking to friends of ours in Southeast Asia, and the, ostrac- the potential for ostracism, the potential for losing um, access to family inheritances, even the, the Atta people, when they accepted the gospel, when they started to embrace the gospel, they were persecuted. Um, their houses, some of them got burned down. They got, some of them got beat up. They got taken to court like actually taken to court for, it was almost, they felt like they were back in the book of Acts, you know, Peter and James standing before in the court system. Um, so yeah, there are consequences. And that's, in Christianity in the United States, there can be sort of an easy conversionism, an easy believism, because the consequence isn't, doesn't turn into an immediate call to discipleship in Christ. Because we have all kinds of, you, we feel like we're persecuted here, but I'll just tell you, like, we're, we're actually not too much, you know? Because um, we have all this space around us to be Christians and sort of to ha- haphazardly maybe even act like Christians and sometimes not. But in these environments, in a lot of them, when people accept the truth, they have to be, you have to prepare them to take up a role of a disciple very quickly because this is serious business for them in terms of potential for persecution, ostracism from family and all kinds of things. Yep. And one of the benefits, by the way, of the approach that some of us are taking to missions is that we use the business platforms that we're developing to help support the growing identity of the church so that they don't get abandoned in socioeconomic terms. And we've just seen lots of good examples of the ways that those business identities provide for them, given the fact that sometimes they get left out because of their decisions of faith. Anything else? I've kept you long here tonight. Yeah. All right, can I pray? Is that good? Father, we, uh, I trust we're humbled uh, by the privileges that we have. I, I feel humbled. I feel humbled by the fact that you put me in a predicament to see peoples around the world with and without access to the gospel and to feel responsible. And uh, Lord, I feel in- incredibly inadequate. I, I, I assume people in the room think there's some sort of adequacy that 
gets generated by virtue of understanding other languages and cultures, but I feel quite inadequate. And uh, we know that our sufficiency is in Christ, that you've made us ministers of reconciliation. And uh, Lord, we just want to be faithful. Would you please help us to face up to our responsibility and to be faithful to what you call us to, to, to be willing to take on responsibility that you put in front of us to take on. And uh, we'll praise you for that and praise you for the outcomes. We're so thankful that we do not control and manage the big picture of history, that you are the sovereign one who does that for us and for, for uh, your own glory. So we just thank you for that. Pray for your blessing as we return home tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.